Good morning. Good to be with you folks again. Uh, it's great to be uh, in the house of God and here at Parker Ford Church and um, engaging all of you. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. Um, Titus is a small page, page and a half uh, book, small th- three chapters right after Second Timothy. If you hit Hebrews, you went too far. It's been a real joy to be walking with uh, Parker Ford Church during this uh, sabbatical season and seeing what it is that God is doing in the life of this church, what it is that God is doing in Pastor Tim's life, what it is that God's doing in leaders as he's uh, engaging um, each one of you individually, as he's engaging you corporately as a group. It's just been um, real great to see God at work. And um, today's message, as well as next week, I get the opportunity, the privilege to be here again with you. Um, uh, Today's uh, teaching and and next week's as well, they're going to sort of dovetail together, and it's on the, um, uh, this is, as we've been discerning with your elder team, you know, looking at Parker Ford Church as a church historically, where Parker Ford Church is right now and where Parker Ford Church is and moving into the future and what it means for you to become more fully who it is that God made you to be. Um, uh, The elders and and I, as we've been working together, just thought today's teaching and next teaching, uh, next week's teaching is going to be really important and formational for for how this church moves uh, moves forward as a congregation. Um, And so this is a bit of a commissioned teaching, discerned through elder leadership, um, spiritually discerned and and brought, and I will be teaching on the concept of church government both today and next week, which I know just sounds scintillating and and fun, you know, like go, go to the study and pull like the oldest, dustiest books off the shelf, and that's where you'll find stuff about church government in it. But uh, church government is actually I'm super, super important. When you think about the idea of government, we think about government in terms of a big, you know, like we talk like, ah, that's the government's fault. You know, or ah, that's because that's of the government. And the government's sort of like big brother, you know, who, who makes decisions for you or taxes you or does all. That, that, that's not how God calls us to think about his church's government. In fact, I'm going to propose to you that, that I think a lot of the way that we've learned to think about church government has been reactive and fear-based as opposed to being vision-based and biblical. So, um, y- you know how, like, uh, on a computer, if you get a bad file, if you get a bad piece of data in that computer, it, it can just become this virus that sort of, like, spreads its way out to everything else. And, and, and other stuff is going wrong, and you're not really sure why other stuff is going wrong, but it turns out that it's actually just this one small part of the way that this computer is supposed to work that's infected with this bad thing, and... and it's affecting other things, but the other things aren't actually the problem. The problem are those corrupted files, is that there's this basic thing that's sort of out of whack and out of line, and because that happens, then it, it fractals out from there. It's sort, of, it's sort of like the way a family works. Oftentimes, the kids are nuts because the parents are not in unity. The parents are not in oneness. And the problem isn't actually the kid's behavior. You can try and modify children's behavior until you're blue in the face. But if your children are feeling insecure because they don't believe in the concrete foundation of the love of your marriage, then it's your marriage that's actually the problem, not the kid's behavior. Right? So it, this is one of those kinds of things. As we talk about the king and his kingdom and what it means for us to be a people who live according to the kingdom principles of God, 
and what it means for us to, to walk in the way that God uh, calls us to, even in detailed stuff like the way that we administrate and lead our local churches. The, the, these are important principles that the scriptures give us. So uh, I'm going to be bringing a concept this morning that God might be asking you to rewrite some of your files. He might be calling you to, um, to think very differently than you've thought before about church government, about what a local church is and what it means to be part of a local church, uh, each one of you actively. So I'd like to start with just a bit of a Holy Spirit exercise. All right, so I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. Just get alone into a quiet space with the Lord. Now, as you're in that quiet spot with God, just invite the Holy Spirit into your heart and into your mind. Now, in that place of his presence with you in your heart and in your mind, invite the Holy Spirit to shine light wherever he wants to. Everybody here came in here with a week behind them. You know, everybody came in here with a morning, having been had this morning, or a weekend. Everybody here has got things that could nag at the back of your mind. Just let the Holy Spirit shine his light and take those things. And now in the quietness of that place with him in you, invite him to change. Whatever it is that he desires. Let's just together as a a prophetic act, everybody hold up two clenched fists. Hold up two clenched fists. Holy Spirit, we today desire to live with open hands. Let's open them together. Not holding on. Not grasping at anything other than you. God, we surrender. We are before you as people who desire your ways, not our ways. So today we hold ourselves, one another, and Parker Ford Church with open hands, looking to receive what it is that you have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I've been teaching each time that I've come on this theme of of the king and his kingdom. If you remember... Uh, the church is an ecclesia. Let me hear you say the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. Ecclesia is a called out people. A called out people for a special purpose. Right? That's what the church is. The church is a purposeful assembly. Gathered for the purpose of deciding on things. It includes the authority of the idea of authority. Authority is vested power. The church is a group that has spiritual authority. You are a person 
that has spiritual authority. That means that you have power. Now, that power does not come from you. That power is not something that you have in and of yourself. God grants to his sons and daughters power, power to be influencers, power to take his principles and to live them out in the world, power to see things that the world scoffs at, like meekness and love and gentleness, become incredibly powerful in changing things, powerful to wage war against spiritual powers, against principalities and powers of darkness. Like this is, this is who the church is. We are a people of power, authority. We are a people who are called to live out God's government in this world. That, 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 is, that is who you are. That is your identity. You are, as Parker Ford Church, as a regional church, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of other churches right now in this region worshiping God together. And we as a regional church are all together united in spiritual authority. That, that's who God, we are the ecclesia, the called out ones, the people of God that he has vested his power in. The way that we live that out is through binding and loosing. This is hearkening back to Matthew 16 that we studied together a few weeks ago, where Jesus says that what you bind on earth will be bound. What you loose will be loose. In other words, the way that you choose to live and walk in your spiritual authority binds people to God's law, binds people to God's government, or releases things, looses people from chains, right? looses people from offense, looses people from sin, provides freedom and goodness and life, binding and loosing, and he gives us those commands. We are to be people who are binding others to God's government and who are loosing God's government in every place that we go, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our lives personally, binding and loosing, rewriting the way that the world thinks about things, rewriting the way that that religious systems think about things. That's why Jesus is always saying, you have heard it said, But I say unto you, you've heard it said, forgive your brother seven times, but I tell you to forgive your brother 70 times seven. You've heard it said, hate your neighbor. I tell you to love your neighbor. Don't just love your neighbor, but even love people who persecute you and hurt you. Bless them. Pray for them. Right? Jesus is continually rewriting. He is buying, he is loosing people from forgiving, from understanding forgiveness wrongly, and he is binding people to understanding forgiveness God's way. Binding and loosing. And you and I are called to live in that same dimension. You and I are called to live with that same mind, that same heart, where every place that we go is a question of who is God in this place? And who, ha- who am I in God in this place? What does it mean for me to be a person who is binding and loosing the government of God in every area where I find myself? From the smallest, tiniest things to the great big decisions that we have to make in life. How do we align ourselves with God? Furthermore, we're a local church. So how do we align ourselves as a body of Christ with God? And that's what we're going to be looking at specifically today. What does it mean for a local church to be a body of believers who is an ecclesia, a called out people, people vested with spiritual authority that God gives his power to, to bind and to loose in this world? You're a part of the church of the brethren. What does it mean for Parker Ford Church to be binding and loosing the government of God within the church of the brethren? You're in Parker Ford. You're in Pottstown. You're in Coventry. 
What does it mean for you to be a place, a, a, a local church that binds and looses God's government in Parker Ford, in Coventry, in Pottstown, in the surrounding region? As a local church, alignment is everything. As a believer, alignment is everything. We can create all kinds of good, nice, spiritual concepts and institutions, but if those things are not aligned with who God is, then they will not have the spiritual authority and the spiritual power that God designs for them to have. So we will be doing a lot of good things, but it will be without power. We'll be very busy, we'll be working very hard, but it will not actually produce any transformation in our lives. Because the only way that God's power flows to and through his people is as they are aligned with him. God does not empower spirits, structures, and concepts that are not in line with who he is. That's what it means for him to be God. And for us to submit means that we stand under him. And so we bring all of our structures. We bring all of our lives. We bring all of who we are to God. And we say, God, align me. Align me again. Align me again. As a church, we should be continually coming to him and saying, God, align us again. Align us again. Keep us in line with who you are. So as we think about church governance, and as we think about what it means to be governing ourselves the way that God calls us to, I present this concept to you. This is a painting by a a Renaissance painter. His name is Peter Brugel. Uh, Peter Brugel was a Dutch painter, and he paints with incredible amounts of detail. Like you could stare at a Brugel painting for for an hour or two and, and not see everything that is happening in it. This is Brugel's painting uh, called The Tower of Babel. And this is his idea, his concept in his mind of what it would have looked like if the Tower of Babel was sort of like interpreted in his current world when he lived, which is when the, was in the 1500s. Brugel pictures this, this great huge structure, right? This big, and you know the, the Bible story, the, the people of the earth get together, they decide that they want to build a tower to reach to God. And they have this level of sameness, this level of, of one language. Like they can all understand each other and they're engage, engaging each other. God told them to multiply and spread and fill the earth. They didn't do that. God said multiply and spread. They chose misalignment and decided to stay all together and try and become really, really powerful. And then they decided to try and reach to the heavens. So let's build a tower to reach to God. And so they built the, the tower. And here in Brugel's painting, you can look at it, and it, it's so interesting. This is an attempt at being so strongly unified that we can conquer God. Right, that's what the Tower of Babel was, that the people, people can become so unified that they can even themselves achieve some level of spiritual power like God. And let's not, let's not get judgmental here. You and I are just like this too. I mean, think about the fall of Lucifer. Did Lucifer say, I want to destroy God? No, he said, I want to be like God. I'm fine if God has his mountain and his throne and, and his place. I just would also like to have mine. And I like to, to be on the same level. We're very similar. I like to play God in our lives. And that's exactly what the Tower of Babel presented itself as. Was this great attempt for human government to match God's government. 
We'll get ourselves together. We'll structure ourselves well. We'll pool our resources. And as such, then, we'll build something great. And as we build something great, it'll be that something that takes us to where God is. And we'll get there. The problem is, is that as you know from the story, the Tower of Babel is, is an act in futility. It gets them nowhere except separated and judged. In Bruegel's painting, you can see that the tower, it's both being built and falling apart all at the same time. Uh, it's really interesting. If you, I encourage you, get on the internet or pull up a picture of this somehow so you can see more of the detail uh, other than this screen itself. But off to the left here is a city. You know, there's like the habitation of, of, of humans is over here. And this, this thing, as you can tell, it's pitching left. If they keep this up, if this tower keeps going, what's going to happen to that city? It's going to be destroyed. Where are the workers who are building the temple living? In that city. And so their attempt for greatness, and if they ever succeed it by doing it their way, is eventually going to produce something that's going to destroy and crush them. There is a big difference between unity and oneness. There is a difference between unity and oneness. Oftentimes, as a church, as a local church, we find ourselves striving for unity. Unity is a good thing. Don't, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be unified. Right? Unity, unity is good. You hear Paul exhort us to be uh, uh, praying for the spirit of peace and a bond of unity. Like that's, that, that's what we desire. We want to be people who are unified together because unity is based in agreement. Unity is based in agreement. The Tower of Babel was an exercise in unity, right? Bunch of people who all agreed on something. We're going to build a temple. We're going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. Who can get behind this project? Oh, I can, I can, I can. Let's all agree together that we're going to do this. Great, yeah, all right, wonderful. Except that it wasn't. Because the agreement and the unity that existed in the Tower of Babel did not promote oneness. Because it broke the covenant. God made a covenant with them that said, I am the Lord your God, you are my people. Therefore, I am your authority, you submit to me. Scatter, disperse, spread, fill the earth. They moved out of alignment with God, outside of his covenant, outside of his ways of thinking about things. They were still unified, sure, right? I mean, there was plenty of agreement as to whether or not the tower should be built. Everybody agreed to it. But there was not oneness. When Jesus prays for his church in John 17, he does not pray for unity. He could have. There's perfectly good words for that. Jesus prays, Father, that they may be, what's the next word? One. How are we to be one? Just as you and I are one. That they may be in me and I in you. And altogether, oneness comes. But oneness only comes through alignment with God. And so we can all agree to something that is not lined up with God and be unified around it and probably figure out a way to make it work, at least for a while. But it will not produce the covenantal power of oneness. Because God when he calls us to himself, he does so. And he doesn't just unify us with him. 
he makes us one. We don't just become partakers, or I'm sorry, observers of the divine nature. We become partakers of it. Our symbol for that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. In baptism, you are fully immersed. You become, you become as one with that water as you can. <laughs> when you take the bread and the cup into yourself, that becomes a part of you. These are our pictures. This is what holds us together. We can agree to a lot of things that in theory are good, but they do not produce the righteousness, the goodness, the power, and the blessing of God because they aren't in line with oneness. Because it's not how God calls us to live and to work and to be. What ends up happening then is we begin creating our own local church cultures instead of prospering God's culture. And the local church culture can still be fine. Don't get me wrong. It can still do good work for good purposes and good things. But the question is always not, is what we're doing working? Do you hear that? The question is not, is what we are doing working? The question is, is who would ha God have us be today? I just gave you a sentence that needs to, some of you, that's the file that needs to be rewritten in, on your hard drive. The question is not, is what we are doing working? Or is that what we've always done? The question is, is who is God calling us to be today? Sometimes that requires change. Sometimes it doesn't. But God will always have an answer for us because God always designs us to be more deeply and fully aligned with him. Living and walking in oneness with him and with one another. So as we think about what it means to be a local church and when we think about what it means to do things according to God's way, God's way of governing, there's two major kinds of government that we can look at. There's congregational government and then there is elder and deacon government. These are the two basic places that churches that run and, and uh, um, lead the way and in the streams that Parker Ford Church does can operate. Historically speaking, the Church of the Brethren has been a congregational governmental structure. In other words, the congregation is the uh, uh, final authority on matters of the church and the local church practices and the way that it goes out living things. Congregational government uh, generally exists and partakes a lot in voting so that we are, um, we are exacting our will through our ability to cast a vote or to not cast a vote in one direction or another, and then how those votes are counted based in majorities or not majorities determines what direction the local church government goes in. This is generally prefaced by talking and engaging and informing and thinking about things together and trying to keep everybody informed and, and engaged all along the same line so that when that vote is taken, and when congregational government is able to have the voice that it's meant to have, then what we find out is that we have a unified choice. Because that vote will produce a level of agreement. It will tell us whether or not we agree or whether or not we do not agree to whatever it is that God would have for us. Elder deacon government is a different way of thinking about church government. And it capitalizes on the concept of God calling leaders to lead in a certain way. And God thinks of every person in the church as a leader. Did you hear that? 
God thinks of every person in the church as a leader. God also thinks of every person in the church as a follower. So we are all leaders in the spheres and influences and according to the callings that God gives us. We are all followers in the spheres and influences and the callings that God calls us. The way that we walk those things out is very, very important. And so God calls within the congregation anointed, mature, qualified men and women to work as elders and deacons within his body. From the elders and deacons comes the word oversight, which we see in the New Testament all the time. And these provide spiritual church governmental oversight, leading the direction in a shepherding way, leading the congregation in a shepherding way, shepherding being the key picture of what it means to be an elder, servant being the key picture of what it means to be a deacon, and opening the door for God's work and covenantal goodness to flow in and through the congregation. Elders and deacons should not be voting any more than a congregation should be voting in an elder-deacon form of government. In an elder-deacon form of government, voting goes right out the window. What does come to the front is the idea of how does this represent who we are and what does it mean for us to be together in this place? So rather than taking a vote to see who agrees to what or doesn't agree to what, There's conversation that happens around leadership topics, and then we rest at that place. So I'm going to break these things down. You're at Titus 1, and I'm going to continue explaining everything I just said the last three minutes, which was a nutshell version. But in Titus chapter 1, here we see Paul writing to a leader in a specific context as a leader of a church, a local church. And Paul oversees, because Paul is apostolic, Paul oversees this leader, Titus. This is what he tells him. Paul, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he talks about who an elder is. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, there's that word oversight, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wouldn't you love to be described like that in your region? <laughs> like, eh, people from the general Philadelphia area are lazy, gluttonous, and ugly. 
You know, that'd be terrible. This testimony, Paul says, is true. This testimony is true. I guess sometimes when you look in the mirror, somebody says you got dirt on your face, and you look in the mirror and you go, I don't have dirt on my face, but you actually do have dirt on your face. You're the fool, not them. All right, so this is true, Paul says. These people are fallen. They are liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul tells Titus, (coughs) appoint elders, set up elders. In Acts 20, we see Paul call the elders of the church. In 1 Timothy 3, we see Paul talk about the qualifications of elders. In Revelation 2 and 3, we see elders constantly and again leading local churches. The big problem with the congregational form of government is that it's not biblical. You just don't see it in the Bible. It's not there. The congregational form of government is reflective of human and basically American governmental values. Folks, look at me in the face. A democratic republic is not biblical. We did not get it right. Now, I know I'm talking to a church of the brethren that doesn't overvalue American governmental policy, which I appreciate about who we are very much. But it's important to understand that we're still in the culture that we live in, and it can find its way to sweep its way in. And congregational government is one of the ways that it has. The majority is not always right. The majority is not where righteousness lies. Just because you can find a majority to agree to something does not mean that you have oneness. What you have is agreement. Great. But that stops way far short of God's intention for his people, which is oneness. And just because we can agree to something does not mean that we are covenantally engaged together in what that is. The majority is actually very dangerous when you think about it from a biblical standpoint. Think about this list. In the garden at the fall, the majority won. Right? There were two of them and one of God. God said, don't eat. What did the majority decide? Let's eat. At the flood, who was in the majority? Noah and his family? Nope. The majority got it wrong. Joseph's brothers, there were 11 of them, one of him. And he was having significant dreams. Did they listen? No. The majority won, but the people went into slavery as a result of it. Think about the people complaining in the wilderness all the time. And God continually judges them. The majority did not get it right. There was agreement around the golden calf. Right? Huge agreement around the golden calf. Let's make a calf. We haven't seen Moses in days. Let's worship a golden calf. We'll all agree to that. And God judges his people. And Moses has to beg God to not destroy them. Judges, the whole book of Judges is about the majority winning and about the spiritual fallout and damnation that happened as a result of it. Read the book of Judges sometime if you want a good lesson in spiritual depression. It is such a sad cycle that the majority keeps finding itself in. 
Goliath's threats. Every morning, Goliath comes out. We, I despise your God. I blaspheme him. And what does the majority say? That's, what, that, that, that's the Hebrew. It takes one boy to stand up and say, no, no, no. That's not right. Mount Carmel, one prophet of Elijah, 450 prophets of Baal. After the exile, when the people come back to rebuild the temple, they start rebuilding the temple, find out that it's hard to rebuild the temple, and then they all start rebuilding their homes instead. And so the book of Haggai is a whole three-chapter prophecy about what are you doing? Why did the majority of you stop building the temple and start building your own homes? Nehemiah, the whole majority starts weeping on a day that they're not allowed to mourn and grieve. Nehemiah says, no, we must stand against that. Think about Daniel and his friends standing up against the majority and saying, no, we will not eat that food and no, we will not bow down to that idol. The majority was speaking a very loud voice, including a Jewish majority. Daniel and his friends said, no. 400 years, nobody looked to hear from God and then Mary suddenly did. And she was willing to stand in that. In John 6, Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the scriptures say, that day many left him. And he turns to the 12 and says, do you want to leave too? The majority got it wrong. Folks, the crowd cried, crucify him. Everybody agreed to that. There was great unity the day that Jesus was led to Calvary. In 1 Corinthians 11, where the Corinthians are misusing the Lord's table, there is great unity around that. Let's all have a party and get drunk on God's wine. And Paul says, you are eating and drinking damnation to yourself. In Acts 15, they have to make some very important church governmental decisions. And they do so by bringing a small group of apostolic elders together to lead the church in the direction that it's meant to go. Not one time do you ever see in the Old Testament a king say to the people, let's take a vote. Who wants to have a 40-day fast and not eat for 40 days? Anybody up for that? No, right? That's insane. Who would vote yes to that? No one. You ever try not eating for 40 days? It's crazy. But this is what we see people doing. Think back to the golden calf. God says to Moses, Moses, these people have so blasphemed me and so come against me that I'm going to get rid of them and I am going to choose you. That's God's government. God does not follow the majority. God follows his chosen leader. God follows the one that he selects and the one that he calls. And folks, hear me say this clearly. He has called every one of you. And he stands behind his calling in and through you. Every one of you is called to leadership. That doesn't mean every one of you is called to stand up here and preach every Sunday. That's a misunderstanding of leadership. That doesn't mean every one of you is called to be president of your company. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to think of yourself as better than your boss. What it does mean is that you understand that you are both a leader and a follower. Every believer is a leader and a follower. And the most powerful, Paul himself, says, you follow me, only how? As I follow Christ. And so the elders that lead here at Parker Ford Church, they're not lording it over you. They're not saying, folks, you, you better follow it. They're, they operate in, in humility and in goodness, wanting to fully be who it is that God meant them to be. 
But they also follow Christ, and they follow one another. And on many levels, the followership and the mutuality that happens in between things is, is, is huge. We all actually submit to one another, even in leadership. I am no more important right now than whoever is changing diapers in the nursery. He or she is leading. So am I. I'm leading right now in the way that God has called me to lead. He or she is leading in the way that God has called him or her to lead at this point in time. And God willing, we are both following Christ. So th- this idea of congregational government is actually a, a, an American-based power structure that tries to keep things centralized, but it actually does not. Things can go hay- haywire pretty quickly because church government enables church politics. Because all you got to do is get the right number of votes. So if you, can, if, if you can make the vote happen, and if you can build and work relationships in a way that get what you want in the long run, that, that's politics. And politics does not belong in the church on any level for any reason. Congregational government encourages weak leadership because all leaders ever have to worry about is that actual decision-making moment instead of continually engaging and thinking about who they are every moment of the day because that informs their spiritual authority when they do lead their local church. That's what Titus says. It also encourages weak followership because as a follower, you don't need to be accountable to something covenantal. You just need to be accountable to something agreeable. And as long as you agree with the majority in the long run and what it is that you prosper happens, then... Ah, things are generally okay. It stunts leader development and growth. A congregational government stunts leader development and growth because it does not require strong leadership. And oftentimes when leadership in congregational government does decide to lead with strength, that leadership is beaten down. Because the last thing that the enemy wants is oneness in the body of Christ. The last thing that he wants is alignment with God's word. But... When God calls his church to govern themselves, he uses words that are specific and that we should pay attention to. And it is this, that he calls us to think about elders and deacons and to govern ourselves accordingly. And to look at what it means to be a spiritual overseer and a spiritual servant who leads other people into spiritual oversight and spiritual service. That's how God intends us to think about ourselves. Elder and deacon government is not perfect. It's still humans who are leading, right? So that's not to say that it always works beautifully. It is to say, though, that it is biblical. We do find massive biblical precedent for it, and we just read one of the major chapters where we see it. When you think about elder government and deacon government, it is a reflection of the book of Titus as a whole, And it is reflective of God's governmental values. In other words, God chooses leaders to walk out his calling in and amongst his people. That's continually how he does it. He says to Moses, I'm going to get rid of them and I'm going to stick with you and start over with you. The majority is screaming a huge voice. And God has moved not one bit because he has chosen a leader, 
and anointed and called that leader to lead in the manner that he has uh, defined for him. And when the majority goes bad, God will stick with the anointed righteous leader that God has called. It is reflective of God's governmental values. It protects against, but it can still enable church politics. At the core, politics is just agenda pushing. That's really all politics is. I mean, that's exactly what everything that's happening right now, I mean, in the coming, maybe you're watching these debates, maybe you're not, in the political sphere, but this is really about, like, what, what's your platform? That platform's just a nice word for agenda. What's your agenda when you're going to get in office? Well, what's going to be important to you? What are you going to push? What are you going to look for? What kind of change are you going to seek? What, what's your agenda? Okay, I agree with that agenda. I'm going to vote for you. But there is no space for that in the church. This is not about Pastor Tim's agenda. This is not about Josh Hostetter's agenda. This is not about uh, elder agenda. This is not about deacon agenda. This is not about trustee agenda. This is not about congregation agenda. This is very much about God's plan. What we desire is to see God's kingdom come and his will be done in the local church, that is Parker Ford Church, as it is in heaven, which is a call to governmental alignment with the principles and values of God. And while elder and deacon government cannot completely protect against church politics because we are still humans and we do still find ourselves in fallen places and so be it, we are aligned conceptually, theologically with God in a way that we're not when it comes to congregational government. Number four, it encourages strong leadership. It also encourages strong followership. It encourages both strong leadership and strong followership. Listen, folks, no one is asking you to follow anything blindly. No one is asking anyone to not have a voice and to speak well and to think with God about the direction of a local church. If you're not someone who is called to the office of deacon or elder, this is not about power when it comes down to it. This is about authority. And that authority comes from somewhere else. It's God's authority. As a follower in a congregation, if you are not a primary spiritual leader in a congregation, that does not mean that you just sit back and come here and consume. God help you if that's the posture that you come. Because the church is not meant to consume anything other than Christ together. And when you're in a biblically-based governmental structure of elders and deacons, you are called to active followership. You, you are called to show up, to think with God about direction, about ideas, about the spiritual, uh, the spiritual plan and the spiritual purpose and calling that God has for this local church as a congregation. Elders are called to oversee that if you look back here at this wall, this is an elder's responsibility. This church exists to reveal God's nature and delight in his presence. It is an elder's role to guide and lead this congregation in a way that we are seeing that happen more today than we did yesterday. That's the idea. That's spiritual leadership. We are the wayward children of God, forgiven and redeemed by God's grace, who are being transformed by his power into his character. How does that happen? That happens through service. That happens through deacons leading well, engaging God and Holy Spirit wisdom and power and walking things out. Right? The triune God 
is the authoritative word. This is who you believe in. The resurrection of Jesus, the global church, the great shepherd, all of these things being walked and lived out. This is something that we walk and live out together. But God does call his leaders out to lead in that way and to walk that vision and to walk those truths and to lead this congregation in that regard. Because listen, folks, here's the big problem with church government is that some of you shouldn't be voting because you're not aligned with God. You're not righteous. You're not called. You can jump through hoops to become a member. But did you see verses 10 through the end of the chapter of chapter 1? Look at it again. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, Paul says. So there's some people who look really, the circumcision party was way more religious and looked way better than the crazy church that the Cretans had, had developed. Right? And they were saying, look, come over to our side. Yeah, you've got to be circumcised to receive grace. Yeah, Jesus, his blood only matters if he gets circumcised. But it's not that big a deal. At least you'll be lined up. At least you'll look good. Paul says they are empty talkers, they are insubordinate, and they are out of order, which is why Paul calls his elder, Titus, to appoint other elders, overseers, to align this church with God because they are preaching a false gospel. There shouldn't be voting in the church ever at all for any reason. Elders should not vote on their team. Deacons should not vote on their teams. Congregations should not vote about anything because a vote is a very powerful voice. And there are some people, the church is an open system. And there are simply some people in the church, it's fine, it's who we are, but they're empty talkers, you're insubordinate, you're out of line, you're not in line with God's righteousness. And that voice should not be counted with other righteous voices that actually desire God's government and actually want to see leaders succeed and move forward in the way that God calls them to move. I know that's a hard word. I, I, I'm, I'm not speaking that without the fear of the Lord within my heart. Nor am I trying to set myself up as something that I'm not. What I am trying to do is honor God's word and honor God's call on who we all are as the people of God and live in the leadership role that God has called me to today. So I just want to speak that. <laughs> this is with fear before God. But I say that we need to be very aware of the fact that Paul in Acts 20 says, there are wolves who will arise from within yourselves who will seek to devour the sheep. So if we're not looking for, uh, I could have gone there. Let me think a second, hang on. Congregational government seeks unity through agreement. Elder and deacon governance is to be seeking oneness through a covenant with God. Congregational government wants to make decisions. We need to make decisions and we need to decide what's going on. We do that through voting. Elder deacon government is looking for discernment, not decisions. Sometimes discernment leads to decisions. But not all discernment is decisive. And so, discernment holds at its core the covenantal oneness of God. I led, Park, I led uh, Parker Ford Church. I led Cornerstone Christian Fellowship for about, about 10 years. 
And as uh, we, uh, we, had, we had an elder team, we had an elder deacon uh, governance, and th- there was one particular thing that we kept coming back around to. Right? And it was just simply that I thought that it was time for, for uh, Cornerstone to start a uh, second service. We were pretty full on Sunday mornings. We have one service, and uh, it was time for us to start a, a second service. And so every time that the sanctuary was packed for a few weeks on end, I would throw on the elder agenda meeting, uh, uh, meeting agenda, um, the idea of a second service. And we would again talk about this, you know, and the elders, uh, we would continually look at this. And some of the elders thought that a second service was a good idea. And some of the elders thought that a second service was not such a good idea. And so I would wait. I was always a proponent of it, as you can tell, you know, as, as I'm speaking here. But, but it was this spot where it was sort of like, hmm, you know, didn't work. We talked about a second service for six years. Six years as elders. You know, and for that entire, t- for that entire time, I w- and actually, I'm a pretty st- strong guy. You know what I mean? Like I, I bring a lot of, we should do this and then we should do it like this. You know, and it would be easy sometimes, particularly in congregational government, for me to, with that strength of leadership, sort of, you know, I, six years I can do a lot of agenda pushing. Six years I, I can get to a lot of people's ears, this, 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 this. You know, we just, at some point I can get a vote that maybe this will happen. That would be great. But we have a group of elders who trust each other and who follow God. We keep prayer and the word in the center. And for six years, the elders... Uh, we would just keep coming around, and we always ended it like that. We never voted about a thing. It would just always be, and, and a couple of times, we got really close to doing it. And I was like, ah, oh, it's going to happen. But then we always have to ask this question. Can we all rest with God at this decision? This is not about I agree, I disagree, I vote, I don't vote. We're not counting anything. Can we all rest with God at this decision, at this point, to start a second service? And the answer was always no. There clearly was not a point of covenantal oneness in our group that said, this is something that we need to start. The last time that got floated was four years ago. <laughs> I'm still waiting, right, for another, but actually not at all, because four years ago, the Lord was just like, Jay, hey, hey, Jay, you're missing something. If I have this for Cornerstone, it's not going to be because you lead her there. Oh. Okay, I can hear that, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I needed. And it took elders together with six, I did about twice a year. <laughs> twice a year, us asking, are we at rest with this? And elders honestly and confidently being like, Ah, some being like, yeah, definitely. Others being no. And us wanting to honor and engage one another in ways that's life-giving and good. I'm not saying that's the perfect way to do it. I'm just saying that's a way to do it. That, I do think, prospers oneness. As opposed to just getting people to agree to things. Because we can get people to agree to a lot of things. And it can lead us to confusion Chaos and the building of a structure and a system now that in the future will topple over on the very place that we live because it's not in line with God.
I can tell you this, my friends. I've worked with your elder team for a number of months now. And you have an elder team who fears God and who deeply desires to be in line with who he is and with his heart for you each individually, for you corporately as a local church, and to be the kind of church that impacts this region in a way that is transformative and life-giving. And they deal with a lot of different situations from a lot of different perspectives, but they do so with a consistent heart for oneness. And so as you consider, as Parker Ford Church, what it means for you to live in and walk according to God's way of governing his local church, I exhort you as a fellow leader, as someone who's been invited and enjoying coming alongside of you in this season, to consider this alignment with God. To consider allowing him to rewrite that file. Opening the door to alignment with him and his word in a way that does not build a structure that will fall because God's structures don't. God's structures are strong and true. And while they are not always perfect because they are stewarded by imperfect people, they are at the core aligned with God and therefore he finds ways to be active in restoration, in goodness, in life, and in change processes that we could never make happen in a million years with our own governmental procedures. So as you think about what it means to both lead and be led in health and in oneness, I encourage you to receive from the Lord his word for Parker Ford Church, extending covenantal oneness into your body as you align with and follow him in your leadership structures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness that we have in Christ. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Parker Ford Church. God bless them. God, pour out the riches of your storehouse and open for them the mysteries of God that just cascade your love and blessing and goodness and life into each one. And that opens the door for a deeper revelation and knowledge of you and for deeper engagement together as a local church community that is transformatively moving, seeing your kingdom come, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.